Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for tuning in and welcome back Tarek. What do you mean? As, as I told everyone last week, you've been jet-setting around the world. <laughs> so Last week? You did, you did the podcast without me? Uh, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately I did miss last week. I was off to Nashville, the country music city. Performing? I was, I was on the Opry. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. When's the record out? Uh, I, I was told to get out and to stop, stop singing when, they, when they'd obviously closed up for the night. Uh, well, good to have you back. I'm Thank sh- you. For, sure glad to be back, obviously. Listeners will maybe agree. I'm sure they missed me last week. Yeah. But anyway, who's on this week, Marco? This week we have our very first video game writer, uh, Ian Dallas, who's the creative director of a studio called Giant Sparrow. Yeah. They've created games, lesser known games perhaps, mm-hmm. to people that don't play a lot of games. Unfinished Swan... Uh, which is a giant paintball game. Yes, <laughs> a, bit, a kind of abstract. Yeah, very yeah. abstract concept and game, but also really unique and interesting. Absolutely. And What Remains of Edith Finch is their other famous, I would say more famous yes. one. And both of those games won BAFTA awards. Yes. Um, in fact, I think What Remains of Edith Finch won Game of the Year. I think that's right. BAFTA. It is and against it, quite a lot of stiff competition. Yeah. But rightly so, because it is a fantastic piece of work. Oh, no, it is. And now, I know a lot of our listeners tune in uh, because they want to hear authors talking about the writing or screenwriters mm-hmm. or comic writers. And you might not be into video games, which is totally fine, because I would still encourage you to listen to this episode, because Ian was a really interesting guy to speak to. Yeah. Had a lot say about the storytelling process and how he writes for video games some of those techniques apply across the board I think and the thing about the games that he creates is that they're not the sort of stereotypical shoot them up they're not your Grand Theft Autos or your Halos no and some of those games can have great stories as well but but this is a very it's almost like an interactive story or film or something isn't it it although I think what's unique is that I don't think that these stories you could tell these stories in a different medium. You could tell them as a book, uh, you know, a series of mm-hmm. short stories, as in the case of What Remains of Edith Finch, or um, a film, but it wouldn't be as impactful yes. because you don't have that interactivity. And if, yeah. as we discussed in the podcast, that interactivity really makes a massive difference. Yeah. So I, I, I really hope that people do enjoy this episode because I think, as you say, games are a genre which is often overlooked in terms of its storytelling and... I think that's something that would be nice to change going forward because the writing in games can be just as good oh. as some of the best writing in books and, and films. And actually, it's, it's sometimes it's the things you have to think about as a writer in games, as Ian will go on to say, it presents new challenges yes, absolutely. Uh, for you, definitely. And the other thing to mention is you may hear traffic noises in the background. <laughs> that's right. Because Ian is the fittest man on the planet. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we probably sounded more out of breath than him. <laughs> and he was cycling throughout the whole time he was speaking to us on this podcast. Yeah. So anyway, we're rambling on too much now. We'll be back at the end of the podcast to discuss it a bit more. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the chat with Ian. See you later. Was it getting into video games that, that you wanted to... Was that your goal rather than to 
write in some other area? Yeah, I my initial goal was to be a writer for video games. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I guess going way back, uh, starting in college thing, mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought that I was going to be a philosophy professor. And then I thought, like, well, maybe I'll be an English professor. And then I was working as a comedy writer on the college humor magazine and had an epiphany that I really just like hanging out with other writers mm-hmm. and that that felt like more, you know, my people. And I'd had some pretty powerful experiences growing up with video games and i thought oh well, maybe i can write for video games but when i was graduating from college in 2000 there really weren't a lot of uh, game writing jobs yeah. it wasn't a career path. and so my thought was well video games are you know evolving all the time i will spend you know the next five, ten years uh, writing for television and film and then eventually transitioned to video games. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Los Angeles and started working as like a super low-level uh, assistant, basically, on uh, on some TV shows and eventually worked my way up to the baby, baby writer and realized uh, that in video games, that like, you know, after a few years and, and learning a little bit more about the industry – that writing for video games was not actually a job that seemed that interesting to me. Uh, I feel like it's often your role on a team as a writer to put lipstick on the pig, like Mm. to take something Mm -hmm. that someone else has already created. And then at the last hour you come in and, you know, sort of finesse things and and try to smooth over the worst offenses. Mm -hmm. And so then I decided that instead of writing for video games, I would rather just make them from scratch. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went back to grad school and spent a few years uh, learning how to program and 3D model and, and all that stuff and then started making the prototypes. And was very fortunate that Sony saw one of those prototypes and suggested uh, putting that together as a game and provided funding for that. And was that the Unfinished that was, yeah. Swan? Yes, yes. Yeah. That was our, our first game, The Unfinished Swan, which came out in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. And for, for people that don't know what the Unfinished Swan is, it, it's, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that people might have an idea of video games uh, as, uh, you know, shooters or Grand Theft Auto or things like that. And your games are, are very, very different beasts. Um, they're almost unique in the, mm-hmm. in the way that they're, they, they tell their story. And it is a very sort of interactive, storytelling almost i would say but the unfinished swan sorry i was saying is or do you want do you want to tell me how would you describe <laughs> sure, the unfinished that, swan? that was my job for a few years explaining yeah, what exactly. <laughs> yeah and it increasingly becomes part of my job as i make games that are you know intentionally unlike things that people have experienced mm-hmm. like that is what drives me is creating new experiences uh that's what motivates me in my regular life and that's what i want to provide for players in these games so the unfinished one is a first person painting game that takes place in an entirely white world and the player is throwing paintballs to splatter the environment and reveal the world around them um, and it makes a lot more sense if you see like an animated <laughs> gift <laughs> second or, or two frames uh but in terms of audio that's about the best i can do yeah no and it's told from the perspective of it is like a you know, a, almost a children's story um, about a child who's, you know, loved this painting that was unfinished, relating to his mother, 
and that sort of gets yeah. you into the story. No, and the high-level goals for that game were evoking a sense of curiosity and wonder. Mm. And so we at a lot of children's books as inspiration and, and took some deliberate tonal influences mm. from these. And um, with a game like that, do you <clears throat> is there is is there a planning of the the, the sort of s- story arc such as there is in that game, or does the concept of the game come to you first and then you you work around that? It's a little bit of both. For me, the thing that starts the development process is a feeling, some kernel of inexperience that I've had that I would like to explore. Mm-hmm. And I look at things kind of as research projects, funding you know me for a couple of years to think about something that is interesting to me. And all of the other pieces of the experience evolve gradually and often painfully from, you know, just sort of trying things out and, and then, uh, mm-hmm. adjusting when, when those plans don't work. And for like Edith Finch, for example, that core experience that everything was built off of was scuba diving and seeing the bottom of the ocean slope away into this infinite darkness and being in the presence of something that felt simultaneously beautiful and overwhelming Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out like how could we make a game that evoked those feelings and that led to making like a literal scuba diving prototype initially and then looking at references similar to the unfinished swan where you know very early on once the sort of core feeling has been identified then i spend a lot of time reading books and watching movies and taking in any other form of culture that successfully evokes some of the feelings that I'm interested in trying to learn from, you know, what they're doing and also just kind of like sort of surround myself, wrap myself up in, in this feeling to make it easier to imagine what a game version of that might look like. Uh, and so then some of those references end up working their way into the game in a very practical way. Uh, like in the case of Edith Finch, we ended up conceiving of the game or formatting it as a series of short stories, partly because a lot of the references, like weird fiction from Lovecraft to Borges, you know, they're short stories generally. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, a lot of reasons why that format works well uh, for creating these kinds of overwhelming experiences, uh, mostly because they're intense and you can't really sustain that for a novel. It works a lot better when you have kind of a hard stop with the end of a short story that you can do that you, you can't really do as, as frequently in a novel. And you give people a chance to come down from that experience. So, you know, you can bring them back up later. Yeah. I, I, and I think that's right. As I think the, the, the biggest thing that I took away from Edith Finch was, and for those who haven't played it, it's a, as you say, it's a kind of, it's a woman who goes home to her house, to her, to her old kind of family home and, and experiences a bunch of uh, short stories almost about her family members. And, and how did you, how did you plan or how did you come up with the ideas for each member and, and the writing process for that? Because it's, it's, each one is so unique and different in its own way, but it tells its own incredible little, little story that adds up to this larger whole. Yeah, in our case, the gameplay is usually what comes first because that tends to be the hardest part of the process. Um, so it's the thing that drives 
everything else. Mm-hmm. And so we'd have an experience, like, for example, there's a story that takes place on a swing set. And we started by getting a very rough, playable prototype of what it might feel like to be on a swing set and kind of worked backwards from that. Mm-hmm. And the story is something that evolves. I mean, it's it's partly there. Like, we know that you're going to be on a swing set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in that case, like it makes sense that you would probably be a child. Uh, and we know a little bit about the world that you're in, you know, because that's sort of already been determined. And so, narratively, some of those things are already kind of in place, but we generally work backwards from, okay, what does this feel like for the player? And then make a story that supports that, or in some cases, you know, runs a little bit counter to that. Like if the story feels, you know, kind of like it's in danger of being a little bit too goofy, then we might make something a little bit serious or, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we use the story. Like I think of the story as basically like curling the sweeper that is out in front. (laughs) That's, brushing the ice away a little bit to, you know, whatever that the giant puck thing yeah. is called. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's like, the puck in this case is the player's experience of the game and what the gameplay is doing. Like it's this very powerful force that is difficult to adjust. And so the story is you know out there, like it's very easy to change lines of dialogue mm-hmm. and to add new information or, or take it away. Uh, so it, in terms of it's a hierarchy of, of game development, it's usually something that comes last, but or or you know later in the process, but that does have a significant impact uh, on on the player experience. And and is is it is it as a team then that you would um, develop the the story at that later stage, or uh, you know I think your uh, creative director did you sort of take a first run at the, what the actual story would be once you had those constituent bits there? Or did you work yeah. work on that as a team? As a creative director, I'm generally the one who's coming up with the original inspiration for all of these stories. And a lot of them gestate for a while internally where I will you know, maybe write character bios and make prototypes and design little 3D scenes and start to kind of think about how these might work. Part of that is because I don't really know enough about it to like, I just have these kind of vague tugs of like, Oh, I think, you know, something on a swing set feels like it ties into some of the elements that this game is about, uh, like the sense of childhood and memory and, you know, sort of slight danger uh, that's around us. And then, to build off of that. So it, it tends to be fairly internal and on my shoulders for a while. And then once there's something that is working and that people can play, then it becomes much more collaborative. Mm-hmm. And we put it in front of like not only a team, but then also a lot of playtesters who come through and then we hear their feedback, which is one of the very unusual aspects of, of making a game uh, that because it's interactive, like it's based on what the player is doing and what is in their head and how they're responding. It's hard to predict how that experience will take root for players. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it ends up being determined by factors that 
you can't be aware of when you're initially conceiving the story, things like, you know, how the scene is lit, uh, you know, where their eye goes to or what you might have told them, told the player five minutes before that in a story that happened previously that you haven't written yet. So you get all these things together and then you realize like, you know, why they might not be working and you make Mm -hmm. adjustments uh, based on that. And so the story is one of those ways that we can fix problems or, you know, kind of massage things back and forth. And that becomes very collaborative. And is, is trying to tell a narrative story via a game, is that, I mean, I imagine it must be a lot harder because you've, you're, you're not got the person's attention on a screen or a book. You know, they could be looking up or down or uh, have the camera swung anyway. And, and, and how do you make sure that they see the right part of the story that's happening in front of them? Yeah, the attention is an interesting problem because in some ways you have too much of their attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just devoted to things that you may not necessarily care about. Uh, I mean, in the worst case, it would be something that is frustrating or confusing. Like if they're in a room and you want them to pick up a book to progress the story along, you know, maybe they don't see the book. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why that might be. Uh, other things in the room that are, you know, dragging, that are drawing their attention. Uh, also, we notice that players can get into these kind of vicious cycles where they get frustrated. And so then they kind of close up and stop experimenting. Uh, it's kind of like if you're under threat, you know, it's very hard to try new things. You to go for what's familiar and so there's a constant balancing act uh, that goes through the playtesting process of trying to smooth out some of these areas where the player's attention is directed at things that are not germane to what we're trying to to tell them about and of course the players might be interested in other things and so some of that is just listening to oh okay like if We've told you about a character, for example, uh, previously in a story, and then you're now in a room where there's a little bit more about that character. Maybe you're just drawn to that, and so you know you aren't going to go to the area that we're kind of more interested in mm-hmm. as game developers. At this, and so the writing, for example, often has to work at its own pace, where we don't like it can be interrupted, or there could be long gaps between. Yeah where we think that these two lines are going to play, you know, within 10 seconds of each other. But actually, like if players go this other way, mm-hmm. maybe it could be five minutes. Yeah. And so a lot of that is just brute force playtesting, mm-hmm. which is kind of a lovely aspect of the process that you don't have to get it right the first time, that you can look at 100 people, go through an experience and start to get a sense of like roughly where are people going to be drawn and then what can we do kind of encourage players to go one way or the other. So like, for example, in our game, there are little icons that appear over things that you can investigate. Mm -hmm. And so we might have one of those icons uh, attuned so that it doesn't appear until after another icon, you know, is activated first. And so people are less likely to go to the one versus the other. Uh, Or we might even put the same information in multiple places in the room so that you can trigger it, you know, in a way that feels natural to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, again, that's just, it's hard, it's impossible to know where the player's attention is going to be for the most part. But 
if you watch enough people play the game, you can find a lot of pretty reliable patterns. Yeah. And as a game developer, there are tricks to lead people subconsciously in a way that feels almost evil when <laughs> you've done it enough times and people just kind of naturally, it's like watching, uh, you know, like balls falling in a pachinko game or something. They yeah. just like naturally tend to a certain order if you have arranged things in subtle ways, you know, often with lighting and color cues or movement or you know, any number of tricks for game designers. And have you, in that sort of playtesting process, has there ever been in, in the games that you've developed so far a situation where something's happened that you totally didn't, you know, the, the players have done something that you just didn't expect at all and you've had to make changes as a result of that? Yeah, it's hard to to remember like specific examples yeah of that but there are a lot of times i feel like where players will do something that is very unexpected for us but once you see it makes perfect sense like oh right like of course people might assume that that's how that works even though you know we because we know so much more about the way the system works and everything about the internals you know we sort of have different assumptions i think also players are coming from you know, a game like Edith Finch that is dealing with some very personal topics um, you know, like parenthood and death and uh, those things play off of past histories on the part of the player that are hard for us to predict. Mm-hmm. One example, uh, there's a story in Edith Finch that involves uh, a young child taking a bath and we had very different experiences from playtesters who were parents mm-hmm. versus those who were not. And so that was an interesting bit of information that uh, encouraged us to do a lot of playtesting with parents periodically just to see how you know they would react um, to get a you know better sense of, mm-hmm. of what players might experience. And another thing that has been kind of impressive uh and a little frustrating is how differently people react to an experience that feels complete and that they have paid for mm-hmm. we like, i probably watched 200 people play the game uh by the time that we released it and i'm pretty sure not one tear was shed um <laughs> all the people didn't enjoy it like you know, by the end it was relatively friction-free and i think people were very engaged by it but nobody cried it's just not something that people do in play tests but after the game was released we heard from any number of people who said that the game you know was the first thing that they made them cry or that they'd had this you know very cathartic experience and so it's another level of you know even though you can watch people experience the final version of the the uh the game when they play it in their own homes, mm-hmm. that's different then. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to uh, to calibrate. Although, you know, our, our shorthand for that is just to get people drunk and to have them play. <laughs> drinking and to have someone play the game with them. Yeah. I think when you have two people playing a game, that loosens up a lot of the tension. I'm still not likely to cry, but they're, it's a little bit more like what they might experience in their home playing the game you know, for real. But I mean, I absolutely, as I said, loved loved uh, Edith Finch, and it did have a sort of emotional. You know, it's a very each story is a 
very melancholic sort of happy sadness or sad happiness. I'm not sure which one, but, <laughs> um, and it, it, to me, it was a, a story that couldn't have been told in any other medium because of that connection that you have by playing the game. You know, books can obviously have an emotional effect as can movies, but I think it is a very unique yeah. experience that you've created there. Thanks. It's been odd to see that uh, more people have experienced the game as YouTube videos than have actually played mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We designed it as something that was very much about how you were interacting with it and what you were doing as a player. <laughs> and yet, it also does work as something that you could be passively watching as a movie. It just, mm-hmm. it, you know, I think it's a very shallow version of that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's strange to see that even though we've never intended people to just watch it, uh, that is how a lot of people have ultimately experienced it. And, and I think, as you said, that the, the, the gameplay was the, the first step and the story kind of came after that. And I have to say that I, I find that surprising. I assumed it would be the, the other way around almost because the story had such an impact on me. And, it, and, and one, of the, one of the ones that sticks in my head whenever I think of the game is Lewis's story when he's um, chopping the fish with one hand uh, but at, at the same time, he's also having this kind of imagination of what he's doing as this as this made up story. And and as the player, with with one stick, you're chopping the fish, and the other stick, you're moving him through this world. And and as he kind of as the story goes on, the world takes over more and more of the real life. And and the way that story ends, it, as Marco says, it's it's really melancholic. And and I can't imagine that that working a in any other medium, or especially watching on YouTube, it was. Part of it, the reason it worked so well for me was because I was controlling the the, the parts of it, both hands myself. Yeah, and I, I think in that story in particular, a lot, I mean, the story is about distraction. Mm-hmm. And that's an experience that as a player, you can be very, you know, intimately engaged with. Like it's, it's somewhat ironic, you know, that you're telling the story about distraction while the player is themselves you know, finding themselves distracted mm-hmm. by the challenge of having these two sticks that you have to do at once and getting kind of lulled into the waking sleep that, you know, games are, are pretty good at inducing. And so, yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to kind of like, you know, going back to this curling metaphor, take the force that is already kind of on the table and extant of mm-hmm. the way that players are experiencing this thing and then write a story that addresses that. And that's one of the great things about being a small studio and being able to make changes so frequently and and up to the very end that we can look at these stories and say, oh, you know, players are really, it's very easy to have them be distracted, which can be problematic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's like, rather than try to not make them distracted, what if we just tried to, you know, emphasize that Mm -hmm. and then wrote a story that you know tied back into that and then yeah it's um it's it's a nice end result that the stories end up feeling very tied together with the gameplay which i guess you could do if you were a much better game developer than i am and wrote stories that just worked well and then implement the gameplay but it also works the other direction of you know having gameplay that is at some kind of, you know, lizard brain level 
compelling and then write the story that ties into and, you know, makes a little bit more visible some of those emotions that are already in play. Like Mm -hmm. you're kind of dealing electricity that's already there. Yeah. You don't have to create it. Yeah. Mm And in terms of the process with Sony, and do you have to go to them when you're developing a new game? This is my ignorance of the games industry, so forgive me. <laughs> but but do, do, you, do you have to go to them with an, a sort of idea for what the game is going to be? Or do you, do you have something working and say, look, this is the concept of the sort of game it is. We'll develop it from here. And you just proceed on that basis. Yeah, I think every publisher-developer relationship is a little different. In this case, we had done a game with Sony prior to this, The Unfinished Swan, that had gone pretty well. And so we had a, a bit of flexibility. Uh, we had, I think, a six-month uh, kind of prototyping period as part of the contract where we were given the freedom to develop you know, whatever we wanted. And then after six months presented that to the higher-ups at Sony for, you know, kind of a thumbs-up, thumbs-down. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, you know, things were <laughs> more or less uh, steady, although in the end, we ended up moving to a different publisher for various reasons, uh, Annapurna, who is mm-hmm. uh, funded uh, the rest of, of Edith Finch. And I think in our case, because we're making games that are deliberately unusual there hasn't been a lot of meddling on the part of the publisher Mm -hmm. because they don't really know what we're doing we don't know either there's just there's some amount of trust that we will figure it out and we have periodic milestones like usually every month or two to kind of check in so Mm -hmm. things aren't going too far off the rails but there is a lot of trust in a game like the the kind that we make because it looks pretty crappy for a long long time mm-hmm. uh and i think it's true for a lot of games that they don't really come together until all the pieces are there and you've made most of the mistakes that you're going to make mm-hmm. um the biggest ones yeah absolutely but i mean what, what they've resulted in of course is uh, two, I think both of them won BAFTAs, is that correct? I think, Among, uh, yes. amongst yes. other awards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is pretty incredible. The, the BAFTA for Edith Finch, you were up against things like um, uh, Zelda, Breath, uh, <laughs> is that right? And stuff like that. And you, you beat all uh, yeah. of them, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think deserved, but, but mm-hmm. must, have been, must uh, have been a shock. I, don't know. I have my doubts. But, um, it's very nice to be nominated. I think my my philosophy, having been on a number of award juries, uh, including actually the BAFTA award for this past year for Game of the Year, uh, you know, is that the nominations. I think we're pretty good as a you know species at selecting four or five of the best in a given year. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we've we've uh, figured out how to select the one best. Mm-hmm. That seems like it's much <laughs> more of a crapshoot. Uh, but yeah, the nomination is is uh, is nice to have. And, I mean, the award's good too. It's just like that feels much more like a, a random. Yeah, uh-huh. and I suppose that's right. I mean, games like I suppose like films as well, but games especially are very different beasts, and they mm-hmm. can they can appeal to different you know 
I can, uh, you can love an action shooter and you can love what remains of Edith Finch because, but they're, they're both games, but they're both telling a completely different experience and story. Yeah, I know it's strange that we have only the one word right now to describe games that encompass such a, a broad range of emotional mm-hmm. experiences, goals. It's like if we only had one word that referred to, you know, televised sports and, you know, Kurosawa movies and, yeah. you know, there's, there's like, yeah, the very, very broad tent. And, um, you, you said at, at the start that, um, when you would, when you first wanted to get into the into the writing industry, that um, the games were the writing of the games was very much kind of the the last part. Can you can you make this crappy bit a little bit better, please? And I think <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. I think looking back when I played games when I was younger, if it wasn't like an RPG, there was no real need to have a good story because it was never about the story. And even some of the RPGs. And even some of the RPGs were awful, yeah. And and I think nowadays, especially with the rise of, of all the indie games, it, it definitely feels like the the storytelling has taken a much larger focus than it ever was in the past. And is that is that because of these indie games and these smaller experiences that don't have to be forty nine ninety nine, you know, triple A games anymore? Yeah, I mean I think there's all kinds of reasons. Um you know, the, the sort of broader cultural aspects are really important about who's playing these games and the conditions under which they are played. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're, you know, if you have 90 seconds to play the game and it costs a quarter each time, you know, that places some pretty <laughs> sharp on, uh, on what you can do. And I think the last 20 years or so, like a lot of the improvements that we've seen in story, have you know, have been a result of a more diverse group of people making and playing the games mm-hmm. and in the past i think a lot of it was motivated by the tastes of teenage boys mm-hmm. and you know like if you look at the kinds of music for example that teenage boys are into that's a pretty narrow range of <laughs> what's what's possible musically and the you know musical tastes of teenage boys in the 1970s is you know different from the musical tastes of teenage boys today, but it's still like a fairly narrow range. And similarly with with games, like I think the games that uh, the teenage boys are most drawn to, uh, you know, is is somewhat narrow. And it's nice that we're not all making games for for teenage boys anymore. And and even teenage boys are playing a lot more variety too. I think that's one of the great things about having a more diverse group of developers and audiences that, you know, people are, it's much easier to experiment and yeah. try things you might not necessarily like. And having smaller teams also makes it easier to make small bets on stuff. And a lot of that is from an economic standpoint, uh, driven, I think by how much easier it is, not just to make games, but to get games to people. Mm-hmm. Like 20 years ago, you would need to meet somebody, you know, from a giant retailer like Walmart or I don't know what the equivalent would be in, uh, in England or, um, anywhere else. But, and nowadays, you know, you don't have to go through that kind of slog to get your game out there. It's much yeah. easier to, you know, take these small bets and and see if they work, and then you have something like you know, Untitled Goose Game or whatever that yeah, absolutely <laughs> out of nowhere suddenly, and then people can can discover it. Yeah, 
Um, um, you said at the very start that the reason that you wanted to get into or your thought about writing games was because of some experience, you know, good experiences that you'd had with games when you were younger. What what were the games, the sort of seminal games that influenced you when you were younger? Yeah, I would say Super Mario Brothers uh, was was the first one that really seared itself into my conscious. uh, This when I was, I don't know, third grade or Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. And the Legend of Zelda uh, soon after that were, were pretty powerful experiences zelda 64 uh was another mm-hmm. and i think lately <laughs> maybe like katamari even though that's now 10 or 15 years ago yeah uh the game that i still think about a fair amount although you know, i find as a player less and less interested even though there is in games even though there's uh, more variety now than there's ever been for me personally, like what drives me is exploring and new experiences. And I'm not quite sure why video games seem so preoccupied with evoking nostalgia. There's so mm-hmm. many players and developers who want to recreate the experience that they had in third grade playing mm-hmm. Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. And you can get games that look just like Super Mario Brothers. And that's a big part of the appeal that they're you know, evoking this this warm familiarity and, and, and I would much rather, you know, create something that was a little bit challenging uh, emotionally and uh, and cognitively. I think that's right. And I think I think um, we are seeing that kind of nostalgia. And I, I see that almost across all, all of the mediums because, you know, how many shows have come back like the X-Files, Twin Peaks, and, and often they're they're pretty crap. They haven't stood the test of time or they don't. Or they're not. It's difficult to bring a show back that was so big twenty years later, and and there does seem to be a real focus now on bringing back old stuff. Uh, what do you think is driving that interest in nostalgia? I mean, I, I wondered if it was something similar to what you said, you said earlier, where it's the it's the people who played these games when they were younger, growing up, and just wanting to recreate them the same games they played when when they were younger. Because I can't imagine people. Who didn't play those games? Who'd want to create them now? I, I imagine they're trying to trying to kind of capture that feeling they had as a kid. Almost, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Cuphead's an interesting example too, where it's a, a game that looks like a 1920s cartoon. It's yeah, layers of nostalgia. That I mean, the people who play it obviously are not nostalgic. No, that's true. That. <laughs> But there's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe people just want to retreat from the present day. Yeah, I think that's maybe <laughs> a simpler time. <laughs> so, are you able to say what's next for a Giant Sparrow at all, or give us a clue? Oh, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I mean, I've been <laughs> a new game, but these things are so uh, unknown in the beginning that. For the first couple of years, it uh, yeah, I mean, it's one I'm legally not allowed to say. Mm, sure, sure. <laughs> I actually genuinely don't know. That's part of what is exciting is this exploration of the feeling. I mean, I can talk about the feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, this new game, you know, the last game was about the sense of being overwhelmed. Uh, this new game is about the connection I feel watching a crow landing on a branch and relationships between humans and urban wildlife. And I have no idea what that game is going to be, but that's the challenge now. And one of the nice synchronicities in, in all of this for me is that 
as a developer, the experience is actually fairly similar to what we're trying to create for the player, where you're going into this unknown place and trying to understand it a little more deeply. Uh, but still, the very early stages of that process yeah. on the new game. And so, how, what what is the sort of gestation period for a game, or does it just vary depending on the game? Uh, I think it varies. For a lot of games, it's zero. You know, mm-hmm. you're just taking a game that is fairly similar, like Super Mario Brothers or, or mm-hmm. what have you, and then just doing your take on it. But for the games that that we've made, you know, they they tend to take anywhere between you know four to five years uh, mm-hmm. is fairly typical. And a lot of that is with a very small team early on, um, you know, with like maybe three people and then eventually it'll get up to 15 or so. And, and your, your writing style seems to start from a, from a place of finding an emotion or, or, or a feeling and then, and then expanding out from there. And, and that seems something that works very well for, for games. But would you ever want to try your hand at writing anything else again now, like a, a book or a, or a script? It's not high on my list Uh, i think i don't have any ideas that feel like they would be a natural fit uh for those other mediums i think i really enjoy the tactile nature of game development Mm -hmm. where the game itself is kind of talking back to you at points you're taking an idea and then trying it out and then seeing what happens and and making adjustments um potentially in the future if if i had an idea that that seems you know, really appropriate to another medium. Um, although I, I found that a lot of the ideas that uh, my brain generates are dependent on whatever I happen to be thinking about lately. Like I used to write parody uh, newspaper headlines when I was at The Onion, mm. and my brain would just be sort of tossing out these parody newspaper headlines uh, <laughs> in the day and then or in the shower or whatever and it was kind of comforting and a little sad to find that as soon as I was no longer working there uh, you know my brain just stopped coming up with uh, with those sorts of ideas <laughs> I'm sure it's still in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> right, if I needed to if my life depended on it uh, somehow and, and I just want to ask one one last question quickly but about the the your, about your next game, and and you said that it was about uh, the feeling of a crow landing on a branch, and and so, are you when you when you finish a project and you and you say to yourself, "I'm ready for the next project," do you basically just kind of like try and experience the world and and, and keep your eyes open and see something and think, I, I, "That's made me feel something. I want to try and capture that." Yeah, I think I keep my eyes open all of the time. So I, you know, I have this list uh, like a. a a bunch of different ideas that I might be interested in and then just try to pay attention to what are the things that draw me the most that I spend the most kind of idle time wondering about. Uh, so, you know, in my off hours from Edith Finch, I was reading biology textbooks and, you know, exploring things related to the natural world. And it, it felt like it would be a natural fit to make a game that, put those interests front and center partly because when you're making something for four or five years i think you have to have some pretty you know deep interest in in a subject to power that kind of um i mean not only constant effort but experience of failure because so many of the ideas just don't go anywhere Mm -hmm. that uh, having something that I knew that I was really interested in and also did not understand but wanted to mm-hmm. uh, was 
And in this case, also, one of the things that I've realized is that for me, the thing I enjoy most about the whole process is the chance to learn new things. And so I tried to make a game that would force me to learn a lot of new skills and new ways of seeing the world. So in the case of this next game, it's all about the way that animals move. And so the first thing I did after taking uh, you know, like a break, uh, like a bit of a vacation after Edith Finch was done, was to spend a year going to school studying animation. And right. so now I'm doing a lot of animation on this new game. And that's been really enlightening to just have a, a much better eye for the way that things move and the way that people's hips, you know, are rotated as they walk down the street and, and those kind of little details that feel like they could be a, a whole game, you know, mm-hmm. creating situations that encourage players to notice all of the, the wondrous little details that, you know, I'm now seeing, but uh, darned if I know how to make that game yet. <laughs> <laughs> What was the last book that you read? Ooh, the last book that I read. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it was probably In Ghostly Japan by Luspadio Hearn. It's a collection of Japanese ghost stories written by an American who moved to Japan in the 1890s. Right. And it's a really interesting, you know, kind of several layers deep uh, experience of foreignness and it's a collection of ghost stories and also a um a small treatise on entomology which <laughs> is really appealing uh, i think this next game is going to have some of those elements weave through it cool um what was the last game that you played the last game that i played was uh, untitled goose game nice i have it on my switch i've not yet played it i'm very excited to try <laughs> I've, I've just laughed watching every clip of it so it's just it's, it's absolutely bizarre yeah no I, I think they've really done a fantastic job at some things that uh we have historically struggled with uh like particularly choosing a very unique but simple and evocative title and yeah. a premise <laughs> that works very well uh, you know, in a one-second GIF. Definitely. Um, what, and what was the last film you saw? The last film I saw was... Uh, okay. The last documentary was Iso Takahata's... Uh, it, was it uh, Princess Kaguya? It was a documentary about the animated film and the production process. All right. Uh, a Studio Ghibli movie from 2013. And then... The last uh, fiction film was John Cassavetti's Opening Night. Cool. So I think the the very, very last thing we do is a quickfire, um, one or the other, rapid question. Yeah, so just... So there's, there's no right or wrong answer, just purely one or the other. Uh, the okay. first one, I'll go first. Console or PC? Oh, uh, these days, console. Um, a real book or an e-book? Oh, um... I really like them both. I spent six months traveling and I would not have wanted to carry all of those real books with me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I think real book. I, I went to the library earlier this week and for the first time I got the response, um, oh, are you going to take all of those today? That <laughs> I've gotten a lot of books for reference. So yeah, no, I really like physical books. Uh, and the last one, TV or cinema? Oh, cinema. 
That's an easy one. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's amazing how few people pick the cinema. I think folk like just lying on the sofa now, but I'm definitely yeah. cinema fan, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love a lot of television shows, but I feel like the intensity is so much higher in movies and that's that's more of what I'm looking for, these intense flashes from yeah. some new place. Well, that was a little bit different, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was, but I thought it was really yeah. interesting. Ian was a really engaging guy, I thought, to speak to. And just quite fascinating, the different approach mm-hmm. that you have to have as a writer... You know, he, he in his case, he, he says not everyone does this, but in his case, he'll start with a game. Well, he'll start really with a sense or a yeah, feeling yeah. that he wants, and then he'll build gameplay around that, and then the story actually comes much later yeah, in the it's, process. It's, it's all about m- trying to guide a player through a process that, to make them feel an emotion or or a, mm-hmm. or, a, or a feeling, as he says, and and that is a that is a certain a unique way of writing a story yeah know? I think even in the games industry to be fair it's quite a unique yes approach. absolutely yeah yeah and um, because well, even, even the gameplay itself seems to come second mm-hmm. it, it is about that player emotion yeah and it, it must be such a challenge to do that and you must as, well as he was saying you can't really know if you've succeeded unless or until you've got people in front of you yeah. playing it and testing yeah. it and seeing if it works I mean I thought it was really interesting that he said the playtesters, no one cried playing the game, mm-hmm. but once people mm-hmm. got it in their own yeah. homes, playing it on their own, there was that emotional connection. Yeah. That because the environment's wasn't. so different yeah. when you're by yourself in your setting, bringing your own, you know, your own memories, etc., mm-hmm. to to it, and you and everyone will probably get something a little bit, a little bit different from mm-hmm. it. And I, I thought it was really interesting when he when he said that the the writing process is is so different for a game compared to say a book, in that. You don't know where the readers will go next. Mm-hmm. You know, you could you could write a, in a book. You write a scene, and you write a second scene, and you know that they'll be read one after the other. Unless it's a choose your own adventure. Unless it's a choose your own adventure <laughs> game. <laughs> but that, uh, in a way, is a game. I but suppose, a game. exactly, yeah, yeah, but exactly right. You you, you mm-hmm. don't know for sure whether a player will go into that room. Uh-huh. They just open the door to, it, or whether they'll go back out to the yeah, garden you can't, again. Yeah, you can't say right. I'm build. I'm leading up to this yeah. massive climax of this moment in the game. Yeah. Because the player could just turn around and walk out the room and, again, and, and you need to make sure that the story is strong enough mm-hmm. to, to 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 a make the player want to go in a certain direction, mm-hmm. but b that the game it won't break if mm-hmm. the player goes the wrong way. But also, it was interesting in that sense that they've learned over this time of mm-hmm. creating these games, they know the sort of subliminal yes ways to guide a player the make, and cues, to, yeah. so that most players will follow yeah. that path. Because I've, I've certainly played games in, in the past where I've been looking in the wrong place and I've heard something from behind me and I've turned around and I've realised I've missed something. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's a, the trick of a, of a good game is to is to make sure players are always present for the story and they're always part of it mm-hmm. uh, without taking the control away. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did speaking yeah. to you and we really that was a really interesting it show. was it, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us um during a cycle yeah. And, <laughs> yeah but but it is a game that i would urge everyone oh to yeah because it, it like, is absolutely fantastic yeah even if games aren't your thing check out what remains of edith finch it's if short, you can it's only a couple of hours it's a couple yeah. of hours but it is a, a very impactful experience i yeah. think um 
So who's on next week, Terry? Next week we are chatting with Stuart Heritage, uh, columnist. Columnist? <laughs> a communist. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, coming in from Russia. <laughs> no, he's a columnist for The Guardian. Um, and he's also written a couple of books, very funny books. Oh, very funny uh, books. I've I certainly laughed. Uh, worried Stories for Bedtime Liberals is a fairy no, tale. No, Bedtime Stories for Worried. Bedtime wor- Stories for Worried Liberals. <laughs> It was obviously around in uh, Russia. The edition <laughs> yeah, I read. <laughs> it's a it's a it's very short series of fairy tales in there. They're very funny. Yeah, well, I read his first book, which is a sort of memoir about his life, but it kind of focuses on his brother, and it's called "Don't Be a Dick, Pete." <laughs> um, and it genuinely is one of the funniest books that I've read in a long time. It's it's rare, I think, to find a book that actually makes you physically laugh. Yeah, it, you know, you'll yes. often have a wry smile or something. Yeah. But there were a few moments in that book where I just burst out laughing. So <laughs> um, it's a really good chat we had with Stuart. Yeah, so, very, very fun. Um, please do tune in for that one next week. Um, as always, just to say thank you to Simon Stokes for his production assistance. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, they can always send us a tweet to at right underscore gear uh, or send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk and of course you might want to get in touch with us because because we are still running the competition uh, as mentioned on last week's podcast our interview with Andy McNabb Andy was kind enough to sign a couple of his books including his latest one Whatever It Takes um, and those are up for grabs in the competition along with your very own page one notebook which we've which is the notebook that we've made to help you write and plan your own stories the details of how to enter you can find on all of our social media feeds. There's different ways depending on whether you use Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. But as podcast listeners, you can also enter by uh, rating us and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do that, just drop us an email and let us know that you have done that so that uh, we can be sure to enter you into the competition. But the reviews and the ratings, just as we've said before... It really helps our visibility on these things and helps yeah. the podcast stand out from what is a very wide field of podcasts. Yeah. So it, we would really appreciate it if, if you did that, even if you don't want to win the books, but I would highly recommend <laughs> you do. And with that, I think we'll just leave you with a bit more about page one, the writer's notebook that we've made, and uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. 
And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.